Returning this evening to the final three verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll begin by reading these three verses. First Corinthians chapter 2, from verse 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Well, our subject this evening then is really a question. Are we spiritual or spiritually spiritual people? In these final three verses, Paul refers to firstly the natural man, and then the spiritual man, we could say the natural person, or the spiritual person. Well, who are these two characters that Paul refers to here? And what can we learn from Paul's teaching? And how should we respond? Well, we're going to look, first of all, at what Paul says about the natural person, natural man. And then we'll look secondly at the spiritual man. And to a certain extent, I guess many of us will have a pretty good idea who Paul is referring to. But then we perhaps are puzzled by some of the surrounding statements he makes regarding these two character types. So first of all, the natural man, verse 14. And it refers to all unconverted people, every one of us, until the Lord deals with us in our hearts. This is the description that the Bible gives of us. We are natural men, natural people. It includes the immoral person who indulges in perhaps the most open and debauched behavior, but it also includes, and Paul was very importantly including them here, the educated and the philosophers. This chapter began by Paul speaking about the wisdom of the, the wise of this world. But as far as Paul is concerned, they are all just natural men. Philip Dobdridge, the hymn writer and pastor, he said, well, the word here, you could really translate it the animal man, or the animal person. He didn't mean necessarily that every person before they are regenerated by the Holy Spirit has those animal traits of a lion or, or the, the uncleanness of a pig. But what he did mean was that the natural man is an animal person in the sense that they are governed by the senses by the natural passions, by uh, physical desires, by animal, animal appetites. And the natural person is the person 
who lives for the here and now. They are out only really to gratify their physical desires and tastes and interests. While the apostle says, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. And what he means here by the things of the Spirit of God are certainly the gospel and all the truths connected to it, the doctrine of man. The Bible tells us that man is a fallen creature, guilty before God, liable to eternal condemnation and judgment. The natural man does not accept that. He may understand, well, that's what the Bible says about me, but he doesn't accept it. And certainly doesn't, he may say, well, I, I, can, I know I do things wrong, but he doesn't see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. He doesn't see sin as the problem in his life that the gospel declares that it is. That it is his greatest problem. That it ought to be that which he gives his earnest attention to seeking deliverance from. He doesn't accept that. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. It includes the doctrine of Christ. His position as the figurehead, really, of the whole human race. The focal point of history is Calvary. The natural man cannot grasp that. And it may be that there are amongst us here some, and if you're honest with yourself, this is what you are, the natural man, the natural person. You may be a child, a teenager, but when it comes to what the Bible teaches, though you understand it in its bare form, you cannot receive it as being much more important to you than all of your earthly affairs and your worldly affairs, the doctrine of judgment, of eternity. The natural person doesn't accept the importance of these things. Albert Barnes put it like this, as a liar does not receive or love the arguments for the truth, and as the intemperate or drunkard person or the indulgent man does not receive arguments for temperance, so the natural worldly person does not receive arguments for religion. There's no point. He has no interest in it. He does not receive into his mind, into his thinking, into his heart, the thrust of God's word that we must acquaint ourselves with our God and seek to be reconciled to him. Really, the things of the Spirit of God here can be extended beyond just the doctrines of the gospel. That's clearly the most important aspect of this. But it means everything that the Holy Spirit produces. It means the doctrines, the inspired doctrines of God's Word, but it also means the convictions that the Holy Spirit effects within us when he stirs our hearts, when he comes with force through the word as it is read or preached and brings a conviction of our sin. Natural man doesn't receive these things. 
He doesn't believe them. He's unwilling to submit to them. They are, says the apostle here, for they are foolishness unto him. They are foolishness. The word foolish here is the word from which we get moron. And in a sense, what Paul is saying here, the natural man looks at Christians and looks at Christian teaching and says, this is for crazy people. It has no place in my life. It has no place in my society. It should be put out, extinguished, buried for good. That's the spirit of a natural man. He regards it as absurd. It's foolishness. It will be to him the butt of jokes, of scorn, of foolish, jestful banter. That's all he's interested in. That's how he views it, in all honesty. And we all know many people who openly express that. But really every person, when they hear the gospel and says, I'm glad the sermon's finished, I want to be out the door, back to the business of my daily life. I'm not really interested. In their hearts, they're regarding things of the Spirit of God as foolishness the things that are irrelevant, crazy to me. They are foolishness unto him. He cannot know them. Now that does not mean that the natural person, the unconverted, unregenerate person, cannot understand what the Bible says about sin, about the Saviour, about a judgment day. He can understand the bare facts. And there are many unconverted people, they can tell you what the Bible says is the way of salvation. It's been a cause of sorrow sometimes to us that we know that children who have come through the Sunday school and now have stopped coming, if you asked them, they would be able to explain the gospel. So when Paul says here, the natural man cannot know them, he doesn't mean they cannot understand what the Bible says, but what he means is something a little different. He cannot appreciate, he does not know by experience the power of the things of God's Spirit. He does not know the sweetness of the gospel as it is presented. He does not and has not experienced that glorious peace and joy that comes with a sense of reconciliation before God. He doesn't know any of that. He may know the bare facts, but if you say to him, is there, do you appreciate? And do you, with gladsome mind, love those things that you can articulate? Here, I have to say, Robert Murray McChain wrote a famous hymn, it's not in our book, we don't sing it, but in that line he refers to his days as an unconverted person. He said, while friends spoke in raptures of Christ on the tree, Jehovah said, Kinu, meant nothing to me. Jehovah said, Kinu, it's a biblical name for God. It means the Lord our righteousness or the king that will reign as the righteous judge. And McChain is saying, 
People around me, converted people, they would speak with warmth and with love. And they would sing with delight concerning Christ and all that he was to their souls. But he says to me, he meant nothing. And all of us who are Christians here tonight, we can remember a time when really Christ meant nothing to us, as he should do. And that's what the apostle means here when he says, neither can the natural man know the things of the Spirit of God. And then he explains why. Because they are spiritually discerned. This phrase, it means, says Dr. Gill, because they are perceived by the aid of the Holy Spirit, enlightening the mind and influencing the heart. The things of God's Spirit, the gospel, its truths, its doctrines, the person of Christ, everything I've referred to this evening, we perceive their real worth and significance and value after our minds have been enlightened by the Spirit of God and our hearts softened and inclined to gospel truth by that same Spirit. This is the great need of the natural person. And if you're not a Christian this evening, truly in your heart, your great need is that the Holy Spirit should so come upon you and bring light to your mind and softening grace to your heart such that you will begin to see and appreciate all that the Spirit of God has revealed through Holy Scripture. And then we come, secondly, to the spiritual man. Verse 15, the word man is not there, but it's clearly implied. He that is spiritual judgeth all things. We'll look at that in a moment. So, who does Paul have in mind by the spiritual man? Well, we could make a mistake here. And some may conclude that the spiritual man is some deeply spiritual person who has been taught for many years and has many insights into the Word of God and they are head and shoulders above the ordinary Christian. That's not who the Apostle is referring to here. By the spiritual person, he means all that have been regenerated made alive within by the Spirit of God. It includes both the newborn soul who has recently been awakened to flee to Christ and the mature saint who has for many years walked with the Lord and they've grown in grace and they're established in the doctrines of God's Word and they are winsome in winning others to the Saviour. Both are included here in this description, the spiritual man. John Gill is so helpful in really painting a very vivid picture of the spiritual man referred to here, or the spiritual person. So I'm going to borrow my headings from him to describe in great detail, if you like, this phrase, this Description, he that is 
spiritual. The spiritual man, says Gill, is a man that breathes after spiritual things. It is his very life and soul. He breathes after communion with God. He breathes after conformity to Christ. He breathes after pardon for his sin, eternal life, peace with God. He longs for a comfortable walking with God. That's the spiritual man. He breathes after spiritual things. They are as important to him as air is to the body. He cannot live without spiritual things. Secondly, says Gill, he has spiritual senses. And he goes through nearly all the senses. He says, first of all, he has a spiritual sight of things. He has a spiritual sight of himself. The natural man views himself very differently. He may be moved to pride. He certainly moved to self-righteousness. He has a view of himself that is different. But the spiritual man, he has a spiritual sight of himself. He says as Isaiah, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of an unclean lips. Or like Paul who says, O wretched man that I am, the good that I would I do not, and the evil that I would not that I do. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The spiritual man has that sight of himself. It's most humbling, but it's an honest appraisal that by God's spirit he has. He has a spiritual sight of Christ. He's not just some figure in history. But he is the eternal son, most needful to the believer. He has a view, a spiritual view of the world, so different to the view that we all have by nature. The world has a very optimistic view of itself, by and large. I'm not saying everybody, but there's a lot less optimism to the spiritually minded man because he sees things differently. He sees the sin, the corruption, the rebellion, the hatred of Christ. He sees all that is out of filter in this world. He knows why. He sees it. And really, one of the first parts of conversion is we begin to see this world for what it is, and we no longer love it. We despise it. We no longer feel we are part of it but we realize that we are a stranger and a pilgrim in this world. We do not belong. We are foreigners. He has a spiritual hearing, says Gill. The gospel is music to his ears. And he delights to hear its truth, its terms, its promises, its I ams, declarations. All that the gospel is, is something that he appreciates. I remember as a young preacher, probably in my mid-twenties, I went to this particular church far from here. Never been to this particular neck of the woods before, and I, I'd never seen these people. Uh, I remember preaching in this chapel, 
and a very old lady came up to me at the end. I didn't know who she was. But uh, she expressed appreciation for simple gospel that felt I preached. And I'm not telling you this to draw attention to myself, but here she was clearly a lady who had loved the Lord for decades. But she appreciated simplicity of the preaching of the gospel, of Christ, of salvation. These are the things that really she delighted in. She was a spiritual person, and she had spiritual hearing. Gil goes on, the spiritual man has a spiritual taste for things, a relish for the truth, and a distaste for earthly and worldly matter. He has a spiritual feeling. He feels the burden of his sin. He feels the prompting of the Holy Spirit within his soul, inclining him to holy things and to obedience to the things of God. He feels it in his conscience. When he sins, it troubles him, and it serves as a check to him. This is the spiritual man, says Gil. Thirdly, he says, and I'm going to leave you to speculate on what he means, the spiritual person talks the language of Canaan. Well, he didn't mean the language of the Canaanites. He meant the language of the people of God. The matter of the conversation, the manner, the disposition, the demeanor. Is that true of us? People can see that we are spiritually minded because of the way that we speak to one another because of the matter that we delight to converse about. That's the mark of a spiritual man, according to Gill. Fourthly, he says, he walks spiritually. He walks by faith. He allows his faith to inform his mind and his judgment and his perception of things, his plans, his decision-making. He doesn't simply say, like the natural man, who says, well, Tomorrow I'm going to do this and this and this. The spiritual-minded man says, if the Lord will. He understands that his life is in the lap of God. He makes plans and, de- and career choices and great decisions, not based upon what he wants, but what faith tells him is important before, uh, before his heavenly master. We must move on. Fifthly, He is spiritually minded in that his mind is set on things above. Colossians 3 verse 1, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Set your affection. Literally there, the word is set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. This is the spiritual or the spiritual man. Lastly, says Gill, although he is a spiritual person, yet there is still a lot about him that is carnal. His thoughts, his words and actions are still affected by his old nature. But because he is a spiritual person, or she is a spiritual person, yet these things are a grief to him. You know, it was said of Rebecca that when Esau took wives from amongst 
the Canaanites. It was a grief of heart to Rebekah. And the spiritual man does fall into sin. He is still tempted to pride and to all sorts of sinful inclinations, but they are a grief of heart to him. But this is Gill's description of the spiritual person or man referred to here at the beginning of verse 15. Well, there are three things we learn about the spiritual man or woman in these last two verses. Let's look at them briefly before we close. Firstly, says Paul, the spiritual man judges all things. If you have a a margin in your Bible, you will see that it could be translated, discerns all things. And the meaning of this phrase is something like this. It certainly doesn't mean that if you're a spiritual person, you can judge every subject in this world. You can pass judgment politically, scientifically, historically. You have opinions on everything and your opinion is right. That's not what Paul is saying here. But what he says is this. The spiritual person discerns or judges all those things that have to do with real religion, with true faith. It's really along the lines of John chapter 10 where the Lord Jesus Christ says, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me and they hear not the voice of strangers. They don't recognize that voice. The believer, in this sense, the spiritual person, they judge all things. They recognize the truth. They know when the gospel is being faithfully preached. They know instinctively what's right and what's not right. What's appropriate for the believer and what isn't appropriate. Now, the apostle's not saying here that it that once you become a Christian, you get everything right every time. He doesn't mean that, but he does mean that there is an intuition. There are convictions that by the very fact he is spiritual, that the Lord has put there so that there's an instinct. There's a recognition of what's right and what's wrong, what's fitting. His conscience will ring the right alarm bells unless he rumbles that conscience over a period of time. There's an old hymn, there's something like this, simple souls have sharpest eyes and learn to walk the best. It doesn't mean stupid souls, it means those that have a single eye for Christ. Those who are sincere, they will discern, they will learn to walk the best. They will know what's right and what's expected of them as a child of God. So that's the first thing. The second thing Paul says about the spiritual person is that the unbeliever cannot understand them. The end of verse 15, yet he himself is judged or discerned. You look at the margin again, 
of no man. When it uses the word judge here, it means to weigh something up. And Paul is saying here, the unbeliever, the natural man, realistically, they can't really figure out. They can't make out a believer. They can't understand why they live as they do, what makes them tick, why they hold certain things dear. They do not appreciate and figure these things out. They can't understand why a Christian would, would sacrifice a top job or a highfalutin career in order to give further a commitment to the cause of Christ. They can't understand why someone would refuse to work on a Lord's Day and rather spend the day in the church or house of God. They can't understand these things. They can't understand why the Christian will have a wedding and they will not bother with alcohol and all the merrymaking of the world. Hey, how can you have a wedding and not do those things? They can't work us out. Paul is telling us that here because they don't have that sense, that perception that the spiritual-minded person has. And lastly, here in verse 16, the apostle says, and he's re referring here, although it doesn't say it explicitly, still to the spiritual man. He says the spiritual man has the mind of Christ. What is being described here in verse 16? Well, the mind of Christ in this sense. If you're an ambassador, you go and you're the ambassador to your king or your government in a foreign land, you can rightly say, well, I have spent time with the prime minister or the foreign secretary, and I know their mind on this matter. I understand what their values are and what their expectations are. And the apostle is saying, firstly of himself, we have the mind of Christ. Christ, by his Spirit, has revealed to us the doctrines of the gospel, the plan, the policy, the methods that Christ would have us use for the extension of his kingdom. We know his mind in that sense. But also, it's true of all believers, as they have heard the word of God, and as the Spirit of God has enlightened them, and worked within their soul, the believer can say, I have the mind of Christ. Doesn't mean that we have the mind of Christ in the sense that like him, we are omniscient. We have a perfect understanding of every detail of the word of God. No, the feelings, the views, the temper of Christ. We have the taste, the sense of, what the Lord loves and what he hates, what brings pleasure to him and what grieves him at his very heart. We have the mind of Christ in that sense. So what is Paul saying here in this verse? Who hath known the mind of the Lord? Well, this follows on from the end of verse 15. You notice it begins with the word for. The end of verse 15, Paul has said the unconverted person cannot understand, 
how the Christian thinks, cannot understand why he lives as he does. The apostle's going to go on to say, for, consider this, who has known the mind of the Lord? Can the unbeliever understand the mind of the Lord? That he may instruct him. Can can this world turn round to the Lord and say to the Lord, well, you could better do this, this way. You ought to govern the world in this way. It's preposterous. The unbeliever cannot understand God's sovereign ways. The unbeliever cannot understand, really, the whole purpose of the gospel. But, says the apostle, we have the mind of Christ. Because we have the mind of Christ, the unbeliever cannot really tell us how to live, what we should do. Because just as the unbeliever cannot tell God what to think, we have God's mind. We know his mind. So therefore, not only does the world not, cannot figure us out, really, when it comes to spiritual things, the world has no qualification to instruct us. And that's probably in the mind of Paul here. Remember what he's been saying in this chapter. He's been talking about the wisdom of this world and how there were those who would use carnal policy in promoting the gospel and so on and so forth. The apostle is saying that we have as apostles the mind of Christ. This world cannot instruct us any more than it can instruct the Lord. It doesn't know the mind of the Lord. We know the mind of Christ. We know what blueprint he's given us as apostles, as preachers, as churches, for how we should live, for how the gospel should be extended. It's not an expression of pride, but reassurance. We have the mind of Christ. So as we draw to a conclusion this evening, there are two different characters referred to in these three verses. The natural man, the unconverted person who doesn't really and cannot really fathom or grasp the things of God as they are revealed by the Holy Spirit. But there is the spiritual person, the person who has been enlightened, by grace, whose hearts have been brought to life, who come to know the truth as taught by the Spirit of God himself. The world cannot judge us. And the world cannot instruct us because we have, by God's grace, been given the mind of Christ. We know his will. We know purposes. We appreciate his promises. We anticipate the fulfillment of that great, glorious program of redemption. May the Lord bless these things to us this evening and grant that all of us may have that spiritual mind.